So hello and welcome back to this Small Animal Clinical Podcast Series brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jassani. Today on the podcast we're going to do something a little bit different and instead of focusing on a clinical problem, we're going to uh, talk about veterinary nursing and try and cover uh, a number of general issues around veterinary nursing. I'm glad to say that I've been joined for this by Haley Kahn. Haley is an assistant lecturer in veterinary nursing here at the Royal Veterinary College. So thanks very much for joining me today, Haley. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so look, I wanted to start by asking you if it's okay to give the listeners um, like a short summary of your career so far. Um, obviously, our paths first crossed I'm not going to say how many years ago, because <laughs> that will make both of us look pretty old, <laughs> old. but quite a few years ago, um, when you were a surgery and a theatre nurse here at the QMH, but um, quite a lot has happened since then, and I think it would be great if we could give the listeners some more background about who you are and who they are listening to, just so that they can sort of put into context what you have to say. So is that okay? Yeah, it's absolutely fine. So where I'm from, really. So um, I graduated um, some years ago. Again, I'm not going to disclose my year of graduation. Um, I did a, 1975. <laughs> yeah, very old. Um, with a BSc in veterinary nursing. Um, it was a quite early on in the degree programme. So it was a combined course at the time between the Royal Veterinary College and Middlesex University. So I graduated um, some years ago. I spent a few years in general practice, sort of honing my nursing skills and sort of putting into practice all the, the bits and pieces I'd learnt whilst at university and just developing as a nurse, really, um, learning my skills and my trade, really. So the sort of the end, my preference is really what I really enjoyed getting into. Um, I joined the Kawima the Hospital um, in 2006 um, and worked there for five years as both a surgery and theatre nurse, so participating in their out-of-hours um, theatre rotor um, and also doing a lot of perioperative nursing for the surgical patients, so the neurology patients, orthopaedics and soft tissue. Um, whilst I was there, I gained my postgraduate diploma in professional and clinical veterinary nursing that's run here at the Royal Veterinary College. Um, in 2010, I went to Cambridge Vet School and was head nurse at Cambridge Vet School for a few years. And then I came back to the Royal Veterinary College in early last year, so start of 2013, as uh, in my current role, to put some more sort of practice skills into teaching, really, more formal teaching. Cool, that's excellent. And um, I think we'll touch on you know, some of the stuff that you've already said about your own career we'll cover in the context of this podcast as well. So, so that's great. Um, so that later on in the podcast, what I want to do is to talk about you know, some of the more formal things that you were filling me in on before we started, actually, um, to do with veterinary nursing. But I wanted to start really by seeing if we could basically kind of walk through the sort of potential career that a veterinary nurse might have. And Obviously, like with vets, veterinary nurses can go on and do a, a wide sort of variety of things, and we will talk about that a little bit later as well. Um, but let's just say, to get us started, that I'm a 14-year-old, I wish, I know, <laughs> let's say I'm a 14-year-old with an interest in animals and I'm thinking about becoming a veterinary nurse. Before we get into kind of the, the nitty-gritty of the whole thing, I guess, are you going to encourage me or discourage me? whether I should or should not get into veterinary nursing. Okay. So my first piece of advice would be to get some work experience. That would be my sort of first port call for anybody that was interested in, be it that veterinary surgery or veterinary nursing, is to get some experience in a veterinary practice to actually see what the role entails because I think, I'm not sure they're as well portrayed in the media as they should be or just people don't really know maybe what nurses do. So I think it's certainly worthwhile joining a veterinary practice and getting as much experience as possible and really seeing the ins and outs of the role as much as that is possible as a, a sort of 14-year-old or work experience student. 
student um, just to make sure that that is the career that you want to follow because it's a career that's you know for all veterinary careers really they're hard work you know long hours long days you know very sort of physically and mentally challenging so the more informed you are at the start before you enter that career I think the better it is for you um, I'd want to make sure that they knew that I guess the difference between veterinary surgery and veterinary nurses because they are very different careers they're not the same career and it's, <laughs> we're, and, both, we're both smirking as we're both, exactly so <laughs> they're not the same career and veterinary nursing certainly isn't a secondary or a I didn't get into vet school so I'll be I'll just be a nurse and it's certainly not that that career <laughs> which I'm we have um, <laughs> from there they're very complementary professions and certainly you know nurses couldn't do their job without vets and vets couldn't do their job without nurses but they are very different careers um, and so I think if, if, it's, if it's veterinary surgery that you want to go into and for some reason you don't make the grade or you didn't get accepted, doing a, you know, and we certainly see some students that maybe want to join our degree programme to then go on to be a vet at the end of the four, five year, four years. Sorry. Which, for me, we, we often sort of speak to these students to say, actually, if it's veterinary surgery you want to do, go and you know, do the components of your, that you've missed before, or you know, do something, improve your grades or do those kind of things. Or if you want to do a degree before to improve your chances of getting into vet school, do a just basic sciences degree. Veterinary nursing is not a degree for, it's not a stepping stone degree to veterinary surgery. So I think just making sure that as a sort of the 14-year-old or 16-year-old, however they are, that they are fully aware of the differences between the two careers and to make sure that they're on the career that they want to be on, really. So, so they're not going into veterinary nursing thinking it will take them to veterinary surgery or, you know, those, that kind of issue, really. Um, so I guess I'm going to push you on the question, which was basically... Um, <laughs> because I guess, I guess it would be nice to, to get a handle on whether we feel or we know, indeed, if there's any kind of da- data about you know, the, the satisfaction, I mm. guess, of veterinary nurses, because obviously we know that there's a lot of um, issues around depression, suicide, all that kind of stuff in the veterinary profession as a whole. Yeah. Um, but so I guess my question about would you encourage or discourage somebody to get mm. into veterinary nursing, in some ways, it's a bit of a crazy question because yeah. you are a lecturer in veterinary <laughs> yeah. nursing, right? So what am I expecting you to say? But on the other hand, um, you know, with the caveat, with the things that you've said already, making sure they're well-informed and making sure they're going in it for the right reasons, mm-hmm. understanding what it is they're going to be doing and so on. I, I, I guess, am I right in saying that you're, still, you're going to be encouraging people Absolutely. This is yeah. to follow? I think as long as, as long as the decision is informed and they're well aware of you know, the actual role of the nurse and this is the role of the nurse and that, what they'll be doing sort of day in, day out, you know, no day's the same, they're long hours, it's unsociable. Um, but on the flip side of that, it's you know it's a really it's a great profession to work in. I've had you know had a really really good time in clinical practice and good time since I've left clinical practice. But it's, you know the team dynamics, working within a team, making a difference. And I think I would certainly if if people are well informed and that's what they want to do, I'd wholeheartedly encourage them for their profession. Cool. And so let's say I've decided that, that that's something I think I want to do. Um, what kind of advice are you going to give me in terms of how best to get started on the path, as it were? So what should my first steps be? And I kind of set it at 14 because I wanted to leave the whole GCSEs thing available (laughs) as well for... You know, so what, what sort of advice am I going to get from you as a 14-year-old? So um, work experience where possible. So the more work experience you can get, the better. I know at 14 it's quite tricky sometimes from a health and safety point of view. Some places won't take you on work experience until you're 16. You know, it's very sort of varied. Um, but certainly we, when we're looking for students, we're looking for students that have got both veterinary and non-veterinary work experience. So right. working in kennels or catteries or seeing dogs and cats in a sort of a non-veterinary environment, so seeing them in you know, healthy animals really and what do healthy animals look like and how do they behave so that when they start seeing them in a clinical environment, you know, you'll start to notice the differences between them. 
um, GCSEs, I guess, would be your your first portfolio. Every you know, you'd need that regardless of which route you took towards becoming a veterinary nurse. Um, and then, obviously, we take from our sort of um, for the degree programs here, we certainly take A levels or and or equivalents of I don't know the ins and outs of all the okay. sort of various. Um, and, and in terms of the GCSEs, I mean, any idea of what sort of what are we talking about here? Like. How many, how many passes? <laughs> so um, it depends. So the RCVS set their own requirements. They used to set them when they were sort of in charge of training. That sort of maybe now we're, um, as they are now the regulatory body and sort of handing over the training, so they're not in a dual-purpose capacity really with veterinary nurses anymore. Um, what they're looking for is good maths, um, good English, and something in the science really, just for what you're going to need later on. So calculations, working out drug dosages, understanding the biology of your patients and good communication skills, really. Um, and okay. ours will certainly be set dependent upon course. Okay, so um, before we carry on, I, I guess I wanted to just um, sort of make it clear, really, that we are focusing <coughs> in this podcast on veterinary nursing in the United Kingdom. Um, and, you know, some of what we, will, we have and we will discuss will potentially also apply to veterinary nursing insofar as it exists in some other countries. Yeah. And I know that we were talking before the podcast started about the fact that in, uh, in the States, for example, um, our veterinary nurses are referred to as technicians and maybe there are different kinds of uh, priorities or emphases in, in those places. But we also know that in many other countries around the world, really, um, veterinary nursing as a concept has a kind of long way to go at the moment. Um, but I, I kind of decided that for the purposes of this podcast, we wouldn't really dwell, <laughs> dwell on that. Um, so I guess that was the first thing just to reiterate, really, was that we, are, we know that we are being very UK-focused, and, and that's sort of the intention in a way. Um, I guess I just wanted to also sort of summarise. So basically we're saying get lots of work experience, both veterinary and non-veterinary, yep. animal-related in other ways. Um, get the GCSEs that you're going to need in order mm-hmm. to be able to progress. And then some sort of qualification, be those A-levels or something that's equivalent yeah, um, and those will be the things that I guess as a young teenager you need to be setting your sights on in the first instance and then you know, going forward after that sort of A-level uh, qualification I guess is a, another conversation and we'll come on to that um, in a bit as well when we talk about the different kinds of training that's yeah. available. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that has received some discussion I think has been the fact that veterinary nurses should now be qualified. Now... Unfortunately, the purpose of a podcast, I can't put, um, <laughs> you know, I can't put parentheses around the word qualified. <laughs> but basically, there is this qualified thing, right? Um, and I guess I wanted to ask you firstly sort of what this means. So what qualifications are available to veterinary nurses? What are the possible routes to becoming qualified? And, you know, what are the differences between, or, or even are they still called, but what are the differences between vocational and kind of degree-based um, training that rates? So certainly in, I guess, traditionally, people that have worked in veterinary practices under the guise of caring for animals around, you know, during their stay in hospitals and dealing with the owners um, and clients sort of that they come across have been classed as veterinary nurses. That's been their general sort of role title that they've had. Um, the difference with qualification is obviously as qualified nurses, you have done, it's 2,100 hours over a sort of 60-week period is the kind of time. So you can't do it all in one big bulk kind of time. It's a 2,100 hours set by the RCVS to say you must do this amount of hours and 700 hours of guided learning over your sort of period of time. 
just to show that you've sort of met the day one, day one skills or your national occupational standards, really, of what veterinary nursing should be able to do, and so that you've shown that you've got the, you've got the knowledge base, you've got the theory and the practical kind of <clears throat> combining the two together so that you are a qualified nurse and making informed decisions from theory rather than, you know, there's a huge amount. I'm not knocking um, anecdotal experience or, you know, sort of working in practice at all, but I do think... I think it's as qualified nurses you're saying actually I've got the the theory to back up my decisions and sort of you know I've got the the grounding really in the theory that backs up what I'm doing in practice um so there are still nurses working in practice um that aren't qualified veterinary nurses but there are under the guise of veterinary nursing um it's something I would certainly like to see changed I think you know for me if I was looking for a practice for my dog to go into or my cat to go into you know, for me, I would be looking to make sure that the nurses that were going to be caring for it were qualified and had the necessary. Um, we we're going to talk about that later, but let's talk about it now. Um, yeah. Before we come on and before you tell us about the ways, the qualifications and the ways to get qualified, mm-hmm. let's let's go back and talk about these people that have been working in practice under the sort of nominal title mm-hmm. of a veterinary nurse. Um, sometimes many years, and as you say, often they can have a fair amount of experience as well. Yep. Um, but they haven't got any sort of formal qualification. And basically, I guess the question is, it's probably slightly contentious, but I know that there has been a fair amount of discussion, at least in the veterinary media in, in the UK. Um, you know, so what, what's to be done here? So can these people still formally be referred to as veterinary nurses? Is that a protected title? Do they need to be called something else or to get some qualification? <laughs> I think, I mean, I certainly I always think if you've been working in practice and that's what you want to do, why why haven't you qualified? You know, what has stopped you from doing it? Because it's, yes, it's a hard qualification, but if that's the job that you're doing or the role that you want to do, you know, I would certainly encourage people to get it formalised, get this sort of experience and get the theory that backs it up so that you've got a whole, you know, very rounded person really that's, that can back up both. Um, Veterinary nursing isn't a well, veterinary nurse is not a protected title. Um, registered veterinary nurse is a protected title. So, which is now so it's all very complicated, very regulatory, very statutory bits and pieces. So, the RCVS are the obviously the governing body for veterinary nurses, the same as they are for the veterinary surgeons. And um, they opened a register in 2007, which was sort of um, to move veterinary nursing a little bit more onto a professional status and so towards being a, sort of an independent professional body, really. Um, so any nurses that qualified from 2003 went automatically onto the register, um, and nurses that qualified pre-dating that could then could also equally sign up to join the register. Um, as a nurse that's on the register, as an RVN, which you can post nominals. Those nominals pre-2003, did they need to be qualified? Yes. Right. Yeah. So they were previously known as listed veterinary nurses. Okay. So the RCVS used to hold a list of veterinary nurses. So it's a register of qualified yes. veterinary nurses. Yes. Yeah, registers and lists, and it's, it's sure, all sure. very confusing. So everybody was on a list, and then they brought in a register <laughs> to say if you join the register um, or automatically joined it. So the nurses that are now graduate will automatically join the register. Um, you're signing up to a code of conduct, so you're saying that in you know I will complete sort of uh, continual professional development. Um, I'll act as an autonomous professional. I'll make you know I'll be responsible for my own sort of actions really. Um, and there's a the code of conduct certainly sets out how veterinary nurses should deal with the animals or how they should deal with other professionals, how they should deal with um, clients, how they should deal with the public, and how their dealings with the RCVS. It's very similar to the veterinary code of conduct with sort of setting out you know your principles of practice to making sure that you're honest and in, you know in, you've got integrity and all those sort of um, the sort of guiding principles that underlie it. But to make sure that 
I'm saying as a registered veterinary nurse, I have signed up and I'm happy for my to abide by these rules. And certainly if I don't abide by those, I'm happy to take disciplinary action if should that be sort of sub, you know, subject to me making a mistake or um, bringing the profession into disrepute or stepping outside of the boundaries. I'm certainly happy to, to be subject to those because I know what I should be doing and how I should act for, as a registered veterinary nurse. Um, so... That sort of is that's great, but we're still left with some people <clears throat> yeah. who are not qualified, mm-hmm. and therefore, I guess, can't be on this list of registered nurses. No, right? they cannot. No. And whilst I guess you could say that uh, I'm not playing, de- well, I suppose I have to play devil's mm. advocate a little bit. You're saying, well, those people should get qualified, yeah. right? But what if it does not fit into the practicalities of their life, especially if they're a little bit older? Yeah. To then essentially overhaul, potentially overhaul their existence in order mm-hmm. to get qualification. Yeah. The end result of which might be that they're doing the same role that they have been doing before. Yeah. And you're saying, well, potentially with a lot better grounding in knowledge and science and evidence and so on. But isn't it a bit um, unrealistic, unfair? I'm not sure what the best word is to say to a bunch of people. <clears> well, <throat> yeah. you can't be on this on this list of registered nurses unless you somehow make it possible for yourself to become to qualified. qualified. I think, I mean, certainly, I think that's the difficulty. Certainly, with it, with dealing with clients or with dealing with the public, they walk in and they'll see somebody in a nurse's uniform, and they would expect, in the same way that you or I would maybe expect, if I went into a hospital and saw somebody in a nurse's uniform, that they would have had a set period of training or that they've got. Um, the experience and you know they've done the theory and the practical sort of training before that and I think whether that's so you can't tell when you walk in you just assume somebody's in a uniform and it does that effect so you assume that they've got that they know what they're talking about and yes they will have a certain amount of experience but I still struggle with with being able I still struggle with being able you know if it was me that was taking my dog to the vet and I went in I would want to make sure the nurses were qualified mm-hmm. and whether you're doing your public disservice by employing again in quotation marks veterinary nurses that are not veterinary nurses as such you know they haven't done the requirements for you know the national occupational standards they haven't met the standards required by the profession to qualify as a veterinary nurse or registered veterinary nurses as we are now are that whether that's doing a disservice to to owners that are bringing their pets into you you know certainly i think they would prefer to make sure that somebody that they were leaving their their dog or cat with was somebody that had proven they were has passed their exams. Do we do we know that? Have we has someone collected that data? Survey. <laughs> Probably not. No. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting. I, I don't want to spend the whole time dwelling on this whole thing, because, but I think it's an interesting topic of discussion. Mm, I, absolutely. You know, when I first graduated, um, that was definitely pre two thousand and three. Mm. <laughs> but yeah. even then, you know, there was, and I can sitting here, I can think already of a couple of people who had been in my first practice for a while mm. but weren't qualified. Um, I think, and I can get a sense of especially having come here and worked here in a referral centre where there's people mm. that have taken their qualifications, you know, as far as is possible at the moment. Um, yeah, there, you can definitely see a spectrum of differences in terms yeah. of the people that you're working with. Um, and it's, it's not necessarily around the performance in terms of the practical things that they're doing, but there is certainly, you know, you can certainly see differences uh, in terms of, as you say, the kind of knowledge base mm. and an understanding of why we are doing the things we're doing, yeah. all that kind of stuff. But I'm also very careful not to generalise, and you know, I think yeah. that's another thing. And I'm not taking away from the the experience, certainly animal handling and the dealing with clients and all those sort of very sort of integral skills to veterinary nursing. That I think um, these the nurses that aren't qualified that are working in practice have got. But my, I guess my bottom line is they're not veterinary nurses. You know, from 
and it's really hard and you know certainly I'm not taking away from any of their other skills and you know, they are very useful but I do sort of this sort of hankering of that they should be qualified nurses mm. interesting um <clears throat> We're, we're going we're gonna to talk about some Certainly, of that. Certainly, sorry, it? to move the profession forward as well. Sure. The profession won't move forward unless we start to build a body of you know, nurses that are willing to sort of put themselves out there, joining this code of conduct, saying, I'm, you know, I'm acting as a professional. This is my sort of thing. If I make, you know, I'm sort of putting myself out there and making sure that I'm you know, keeping up my continual professional development and you know, I'm signing up for, to being regulated, essentially. Um, I'm signing up for it to push the profession forward because if we don't take responsibility or we don't start standing as a profession, we won't move forward. We'll sort of always stay as this, you know, very much like human nurses have done. They, you know, they've taken their profession. You know, you've got in your head, you think, so a human nurse, you think, oh, that, I know what the human nurses do. You know, I can sort of see them as, a, you know, they're independent professionals, you know, they're, they're running this kind of thing. And, yeah, just, I'm, yeah, I would struggle with non-qualified. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Um, we're going to talk about this again in, in a couple of minutes. Uh, but before we do, um, could you just, um, I guess, let us know what kind of qualifications are available to nurses? And, you know, as I said before, what are the routes to qualification? What kind of what are the differences between vocational and degree-based, because we, we sort of got tan- tangent away. Of tangents, <laughs> so that's fine. Um, um, yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so we there are two main, mainly two routes that go, go into veterinary nursing. Um, so there's a level three diploma route, which tends to be a little bit more apprenticeship-based, so it's varied in delivery um, at a sort of a further education college, uh, which either a part-time or full-time course you can do, um, which is a 90-week for minimum amount of training time you would do. So that's your level three. And tends to be the old sort of style that people used to do. You know, you'd go to college one day a week and you'd be working in practice for the rest of the time. So some colleges are stored out like that, and some will do it as a block of theory and then a block of working mm-hmm. in practice. The other option is there's a higher national diploma um, or a foundation or BSc degree course. Um, here at the RVC, we offer both the foundation degree and the BSc degree. Um, it's a three-year course with foundation, four-year course with a BSc. Um, and our courses are fairly flexible in how you wish to do them. So whichever route, whichever course you start on, you'll study together for the first three years. So at the end of three years' time, you'll all be qualified nurses, so you'd graduate as a qualified registered veterinary nurse at the end of your third year uh, with a foundation degree. Um, if you wish to carry on to do the BSc, if you started as a foundation student, you've got a few more assignments to do in that summer. If you can pass those assignments, you can then go on and do a BSc year. And equally, if you started on the BSc course at the end of three years, if you decide that actually you want to go and work in practice, you don't feel like you want to do another year to get a BSc, you can step off and go and work in practice because you're qualified at that stage. Um, so it's a fairly flexible course. So. And those courses, are they sometime in clinics and sometime yep. theory? And yep, so um, they will certainly do, um, we tend to as a theory block, placement block, theory block, placement block, which will vary between eight and sort of 16 weeks. Um, usually the theory blocks are about eight or nine weeks and then they'll go out into practice for again sort of somewhere between eight or 16 weeks on placement and then they'll come back into us. And those practices that nurses in training can go to, do mm-hmm. they have to be certain kinds of practices or can they go anywhere? Yeah. No, they need to be, um, so the RCVS training practices, they keep a list of training practices um, so they need to be approved because they need to meet certain standards and have certain uh, status, you know, very, very similar to sort of hospital status. They don't have to be hospitals but they need to have met certain criteria that the RCVS lie out for training. 
And do those criteria involve you know the personnel in those practices, or is it about what they do there? Or like, do they have to have a, a nurse mentor or something like that? that um, all of our students will be allocated a clinical coach out in practice, and that may well be a qualified veterinary nurse, or it can be a veterinary surgeon, and mm-hmm. they'll be responsible for them through their training. Mm-hmm. So they're sort of responsible for making sure the nurses have um, on our program they have a nursing progress log to fill out in practice. So it's a, a skills list essentially of 371 different skills that they have to be able to perform competently. Um, as part of their training based on the sort of the occupational standards to make sure that they're able to do both the, both the sort of very technical practical skills and you know other things so maybe can they formulate care plans for patients with neurological disease or can they you know, do this sort of how do they know how to um, nurse an orthopedic patient postoperatively or deal with a diabetic cat you know these sort of things so and um, so we, we have some of those nurses here at the QH, mm-hmm. right? So, they, yeah. so are they just coming here versus going to another practice, or do they do they go to different practices? Or? Um, I guess that's one. I guess one of our selling points from our degree course is certainly the student nurses aren't in the same place or don't have to be in the same practice for the whole of their training. So um, they can certainly get a range of experience. So if they want to go first opinion that's closer to home, they can certainly live at home and go to one that's first opinion practice there or a referral practice near a home. They've certainly got the opportunities to come and experience life in the you know university teaching hospital so it really very much depends upon the student but you know i think that's one of the advantages of the higher education courses is being able to sort of almost tailor some of your sort of um practical experience really so you've done your first opinion work you know what it's like to work in first opinion you're now in your third year and you think actually i'd quite like to get involved in more theater-based nursing and see what happens in theater to complete that sort of component of my nursing progress log and they They've have a different the clinical coach in each uh, practice that they go to? Yes, or? they will do. Yeah. Yeah. So their clinical coach will be somebody that's responsible for them where in each of their practices. Yeah, so. Okay, great. So, um, and so regardless of which specific type of training <coughs> they undergo, the, the end result of all of this is that they will be uh, registered veterinary yes. nurses. Yeah. And then, I guess as you were saying, the differences between a BSc and a foundation. And, yeah. and so that's, I suppose, about the... Um, the extent of their training, if you like, mm-hmm. but basically the, the the aim for all for all of them is to become a registered veterinary nurse. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Now, um, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was, um, you know, I know sometimes this comes up as a topic of discussion in human medicine is, and as you've already said, that there has been this um, move in human medicine sooner than in, in veterinary nursing. Um, towards kind of nurses having more training, more knowledge, and essentially becoming qualified and potentially, you know, further qualified. Um, and I guess one of the questions, or one of the things I often hear sort of raised in, in radio phone-ins and documentaries and this kind of thing is whether there is a tension between um, that and what I guess are considered sort of more traditional attributes of, of being a nurse, which is sort of Things like, you know, your compassion towards the patients, a focus on actual hands-on patient care and and that sort of thing. And some people argue that the types of people that are likely to be motivated by getting qualifications, getting degrees, are maybe also, you know, less likely to not necessarily see the importance of but maybe be less willing to actually do some of these more kind of basic patient care-related tasks. And... You know, maybe they increasingly see that as someone else's job, mm-hmm. and so maybe a patient care assistant or something like that. And so, in essence, one of the things that we hear often raised, um, at least in the UK, about the National Health Service, for example, is 
a huge concern about the amount of compassion and care that, that nurses are potentially mm-hmm. delivering nowadays versus 10 years ago versus 20 years ago and so on. And again, I, I don't speak about this from a position of, of being well-informed or anything, so I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm just putting it out there. But I guess the question is, um, do you think that that in itself is a valid thing to be concerned about? And if you do, then you know, is it something that we need to be very kind of wary of in, in the sort of context of veterinary nursing as well? Um, I think it was certainly when I qualified, you know, being one of the first degree nurses that, that graduated with BSc in veterinary nursing. So we know how old you are now. Yeah, one, yeah. one, one of the first, <laughs> generically one of the first. Um, I think there was certainly a huge amount of prejudice um, towards vet- degree nurses, you know, even even when, during the training process. You know, I had some of my some of my peers out in practice that um, weren't asked to help because they wanted a proper nurse or, you know, they wanted people that were better, you know, trained practically. Um, and I think... I think as we sort of more nurses have come out of the degree process, I think that is certainly changing. I don't think there's as much prejudice. I think obviously we're doing the same amount of practical experience, or, you know, those kind of, we're meeting the same criteria as the vocational qualified nurses. I think the other concern at times is that um, those that have trained, as you say, but want you know a higher qualification, want to be mini vets or want to be doing things that aren't you know nursing based tasks. They want to be doing something else. But again, I think that's something that is fairly unsubstantiated. I think people that go into veterinary nursing and say ideally are those that want to be veterinary nurses um i think as degree students i think you approach your patients slightly differently so i think some of the sort of the depth and breadth of um theory that that's taught to the nurses that we see here um we're teaching our nurses to look at their patients very individually and sort of assess you know looking at your patients assessing your patients making a plan for them as individual patients implementing that plan and then coming back again and reassessing what I, what have i done as a nurse has it made a difference is it you know has it worked hasn't it worked what can i do better next time or what can i change to make things better so that kind of cycle of constant assessment really of your patients um, and certainly using an evidence base for that so you know if my patient's hypothermic at the end of surgery how which what is the best method of warming my patients up you know how how best should i go about this should i just put a load of blankets on them pop them in the kennel or should i you know should i maybe think about using you know one of the sort of air warmers or what what's available to me what skills or what do i know what have i read about before that's, that's and, and i guess the question there is i guess again i'm sort of playing devil's advocate for <clears throat> yep. the purpose of, of pressing you a little bit here but one could say, well, the vet should be able to just sort of tell them which warming method is the yeah. best warming method, and they should be more concerned about making sure the patient's lying on a comfortable bed, that they mm-hmm. haven't soiled themselves, yeah. that kind of stuff, versus actually knowing what the evidence base is for the best way yeah. of warming a patient, because that isn't their job. I mean, as I'm, I'm hugely paying yeah. attention yeah. for the purpose of this podcast, and you, you know me yeah. in the clinical environment, yeah, and absolutely. you know what I think about all these things. But, um, you know, what, what, I mean, I guess that's sort of my question, really, mm-hmm. is that... Is all of this qualification stuff not, in a way, encouraging nurses mm-hmm. to become a bit more like mini beds and actually yeah. saying, well, who are the people that are actually supposed to be more focused on the basics of husbandry and patient care and that kind of stuff? Yeah. And is there a contradiction there or, or not, really, I guess? No, I, don't. I, th- I certainly think, you know, if I, if I went to any of the vets that I worked with in practice before and said, how do you think I should warm up this patient? They don't know because they, you know, that is for them. That's considered a nurse's job. Or how can I make this dog more comfortable on its bed? Well, I don't know. You're a nurse. You should be able to know. So I think certainly focusing on nursing tasks, you know, and how how can I, you know, what difference can I make for my patients? You know, can mm. I make them more comfortable? Are they more happy propped up, or should I leave it on this? How often should I turn recumbent patients? You know, to make them more comfortable. Are they going to be? Do they need some sort of padding between their knees? You know, when they're laying on their side, to stop their sort of knee little stifle joints rubbing together. 
and a lot of what we've done prior to now um, in veterinary nursing generally, and I think, you know, in, in a lot of situations is either based on tradition, because we've always done it that way, or because I think that this works better, um, or intuition, routine, sort of trial and error, um, or you read it somewhere around the line. So I think certainly, you know, whereas I think what uh, certainly we're trying to produce as people that are looking for an evidence base, so why do we do what we do? You know, it should be we've got some sort of reasoning behind our decisions, really. Um, and if it works, you know, if it works for me really well, and I could certainly say, well, actually, this works really nicely for me. I've tried it on this many patients. And getting that work published and getting it out there, so it's certainly improving animal welfare up and down. You and, know, and, and, and again, I, you know, and I, that's an entirely valid thing to say, mm-hmm. and the whole <clears> push <throat> towards evidence base in medicine in general yeah. and in veterinary medicine, absolutely no, no contradict, no problem there. Mm. But I guess the question I keep coming back to is, is that sort of person also somebody that's going to go and warm some food, sit and hand feed it to the patient, spend some time giving the cat some cuddles, mm-hmm. worry about the stress levels for the patients? Is that the same sort of person that's going to be doing, that's going to have an interest in both aspects there? Or actually, are they, are they going to become a little bit more about like, well, all that other stuff is someone else's problem because now I'm more interested in yeah. knowing what the evidence base is for... Yeah. or why you know and then and then is because i guess we have you know for example here we have patient care assistants and a lot of bigger veterinary institutions hospitals mm-hmm. practices have kennel assistants and people oh. like that and i guess and then you're in a much smaller clinical environments where there are no mm-hmm. none of those people and they are just just veterinary nurses um and in some ways you know in those environments where there are patient care assistants and stuff our nurses not doing the things that traditionally i guess we associated with nurses and mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like maybe they're not, they don't feel like warming the food and hand feeding it yeah. is their role anymore because actually they've got more sort of important inverted commas things to worry about. No, I, no, I don't <laughs> I completely disagree. <laughs> Firstly, I'd like to say I have certainly worked with some incredible patient care assistants at the QMH. And for me, they are, you know, they sort of hold the nursing team together. They help, they complement the nursing team incredibly over in the hospital. Um, and certainly I've been on, you know, horrendously busy shifts and those patient care assistants are the ones you want by your side because they're fantastic. Um, and certainly, yes, they are incredibly good. You know, they can keep just some of the sort of the skills that you don't need a qualified nurse for. So you can keep things running. You can keep things stocked up. You can make sure the washing's done. You can make sure your patients are all walked out. All these kind of things that are really, really, that you don't necessarily need to be a qualified nurse to be doing. Um, they've certainly helped us out massively in our shifts. You know, they've been fantastic for us. Um, but again, you know, they are two different roles. Um, and I certainly think... It's a very... We're in this kind of performance-related profession, veterinary nursing. We're doing things, and we want to be doing things to make things better for our patients. Um, and by sort of saying, oh, we don't need to... We don't need any science base to it, then you're saying that you can be a nurse without thinking, almost. You know, saying, actually, as a degree nurse, you know, I want to be able to... I want to think and um, research and see what I can do to the best of my patients. And then if you're saying, well, if you don't need that, then you're sort of saying you don't need to be thinking about your patients when you're nursing them. It's that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, you know, but that's the kind of, you know, and that's the sort of some maybe to potential, yeah, if you look at it from one side. Um, but, I, you know, I think, I think regardless of which route you qualified for, if you can't perform the actual day-to-day role as a veterinary nurse, you won't succeed in the profession. So I've certainly met nurses that have qualified from both, you know, aspects, you know, vocational qualified nurses and degree qualified nurses who I've you know, met fantastic nurses from both sides. And I don't think, 
necessarily your your value or your worth as a nurse or your usefulness as a nurse is is entirely dependent upon your route of qualification and I've certainly met nurses from the other side that I think oh (laughs) you know maybe I'd rather not work with you all the time or you know I've found difficult nurses nurses that have been difficult and I don't think the difficulty with working with them is due to their route of qualification I think it's a personal issue I think nurses want to nurse they want to do the best for their patients and uh, we're just the nurses that we're sort of um, graduating are just nurses. We're equipping them with the skills to look further and look a bit deeper and you know investigate a little bit more and to put research out there for other nurses to read, mm-hmm. so that actually we've done this and it's worked really well. Why don't you know? Why don't you try it, sort of thing? So when you're looking, if you look on a search engine for your journal, you say, "I'd like to know how you know I'm struggling with my patient." So if you normally go to something that's more experienced, but if you are the most experienced person, and you're still struggling with your patients you've got somewhere else potentially to go that, you know, sort of sharing the skills and sharing the evidence and sharing sort of some sort of research and it just helps to push that profession forward, I guess. Excellent. I'm going to leave you alone now. About <laughs> um, I mean, as I say, it's difficult for me because, I, you know, I think you know how I am in clinics, mm. but, I, but at the same time, these are certainly some things that um, do come up and, you know, you do hear being said on the grapevine or in the veterinary media or whatever, and I think it's important for us to tackle them head on and not yeah no absolutely and I think my my experience is they're fairly unsubstantiated or they've had a bad experience with a nurse of whichever field they've trained in and I think it's more of a problem with a nurse an individual regard rather than sorry their route of qualification interesting and um I think one of the other things that sort of lends to the um the sort of confusion in a way or the mess if you like is that we know that you know first opinion practice in the United Kingdom, for example, varies quite a lot um, yeah. in terms of the size of the practice, the work that's done, etc. And then you've got, you know, an increasing number of kind of pseudo-referral and referral centres and so on. So I suppose there is quite a wide variety of environments and we're trying to talk in general terms about things yeah. <laughs> that, you know, would, um, would potentially not be able to just look across the board and say, well, this conversation applies to every <laughs> practice in the UK. Um, what I wanted to do was to say that in the context of a kind of, I don't know what you can even say such a thing, but a typical first opinion practice in the United Kingdom, what are the kinds of roles that a, a nurse, um, you know, she or he might be performing on a daily basis? What kind of tasks might they be doing? So I guess when you were saying about talking to that young teenager and saying, you know, be, be clear about what you might be doing in the future, yeah. what sort of things might they be doing on a day-to-day basis? So I agree. I completely agree. I think it is incredibly difficult to generalise. I think veterinary practices vary hugely amongst, you know, even first opinion practices will vary hugely either with workload, caseload, numbers of patients, numbers of staff, you know, what the sort of procedures are performed. Um, so it is quite difficult to, to generalise, but generally, so we're looking generalised, but generally, um, what nurse, veterinary nurses will be doing on a day-to-day basis is ensuring that their patients get the highest standard of care from the minute they walk into the minute they're discharged. So that may be involved in the sort of the pre-operative processes, you know, taking the bloods, placing intravenous catheters, ready for sort of anaesthesia or ready for surgery, um, helping, assisting with the vet for the induction process for, you know, if we're looking, talking generally for surgery, specifically patients. Uh, preparing um, the patients for surgery, so clipping their hair, making sure the skin's prepared aseptically to make sure that we've got the most aseptic environment um, for a surgical procedure. Again, looking at evidence-based, we go back slightly, you know, which of these topical skin agents should I be using to make sure that my patient's got... The patient's got, you know, sort of, but at least being aware of there are various skin topical skin agents that we can use to prepare mm-hmm. our patients. Which one should I be using in this area of the body? Which one, you know, which agent 
patient has got the least likely chance of a post-operative infection or you know what shouldn't you know what what do we need do we need gloves for surgery do we need gowns for surgery these kind of things you know nurses should be certainly involved in these decisions and pushing them forward um, so being sort of essentially a surgical assistant, so I assist again the patient into theatre, um, being an assistant for the surgeon during the surgery, um, some places monitoring out of anaesthetics, so monitoring the patient during the anaesthesia, um, and then again monitoring them post-operatively to make sure that they're comfortable, make sure that they're receiving adequate nutrition post-operatively, you know, they've woken up properly, they're fully recovered from their anaesthesia, they're not uncomfortable, you know, they're nice and warm, you know, how you'd want them to be looked after sort of post-operatively. Um, and certainly things like nurses will also get involved in laboratory skills, so you know, running blood tests, running blood samples, radiographic um, positioning and processing of radiographs in practice, um, lots of sort of client communication as well. So certainly, and this very again varies between practices, but running nurse clinics, so sort of seeing clients on a day-to-day basis for post-operative checks or puppy checks, kitten checks, building and fostering those relationships to keep clients coming back and certainly educating the owners as well so we can prevent some of the problems that we see mm. um, in practice. So it was a really varied sort of role of the nurse, I think, in general practice. So it's either very, that front of house is incredibly important for, you know, long-term health of your patients. And then as well, sort of once she's behind the scenes, I guess, doing everything to make sure that the patient's experience in the hospital is as stress-free as, as it can be, really. Um, and then, you know, and I guess in, in some environments, they're also um, tasked with, you know, stuff like ordering stuff and doing admin-related yep, and finance-related. And I mean, there's a lot of things there, isn't there, that you've sort of touched on quite a number of them. And I guess that sort of um, <coughs> applies to the veterinary profession in general in the sense that vets too are tasked with doing a, a quite mm-hmm. sort of wide variety of potential yeah. things depending on the environment in, in which they work. But I guess with, with the nurses, they have their own set of very wide potential mm-hmm. things that they might be asked to do. Um, in terms of how those roles and responsibilities might change, so say you've got your, your nurse who starts out just qualified, just been registered in a sort of typical practice, whatever mm-hmm. that is, um, how might their roles and responsibilities change as time goes on? So certainly, I guess, um, the opportunity to progress. So a lot of places will have a head nurse. Even with three or four nurses, it's nice to have somebody, that, you know, your sort of more experienced nurse that you can go to that's in charge of making sure that everybody else is okay. And there's a sort of, um, like a one voice, really, for your nursing team, certainly, you know, in the practice and sort of somebody to look up to and as, a, as a more junior nurse. So senior nurses or head nurses, you know, depending on your size of practice, depends on what kind of thing you'd have. Um, you could certainly move to one of the specialist clinics if it was something particularly you were interested in. My interest is very much surgery-based and surgery and theatre-based. Um, so that's you know part of my reason why I came to the QMH is that actually I've been in practice. What I really like, you know, this is part of my role that I really enjoy. So I'm going to go to... Um, an institution that I can really develop those skills. Did you ever spend any time in ICU, by the way? Um, occasional, <laughs> occasional pops into ICU. Um, my biggest issue is I had no idea where anything was. <laughs> it's all in a different place yeah, to my yeah. sort of cocoon of <laughs> surgery and theatre, really. Um, so, so, yeah. Pursuing, pursuing your interests, I guess, in a more... Um... Yeah, pursuing them and seeing what you can develop. So, certainly then, you know, if you want to do further studies, so if you want to do, you know, diplomas, those kind of things, focusing on an area that you're particularly interested in, um, you can certainly, if you wanted to go into a pharmaceutical or more into industry, there's, you know, there's vacancies often for veterinary nurses there, or in education, if you want to, if that's sort of something that you want to do, there's an education, certainly a good step. So, again, quite, quite, a number of, um, quite a number of options. And, I mean, you've touched on some of the things there in terms of other career paths um, apart from kind of life in practice. Yeah. Um, 
And I guess from my point of view, so you've obviously said about pharmaceuticals and other kind of industry type of things. I think one of the um, one of the things that you know veterinary nurses, at least I, I'm aware with social media nowadays, of a number of kind of you know I don't know if they're registered or not registered, yeah. but they're veterinary <laughs> nurses. Um, who get very, very involved and are very passionate about kind of welfare work mm-hmm. and charity work yep. and both abroad and in the UK. And I think, again, they make a, a massive contribution. I, I'm, I'm often in awe, to be honest, by the things that they manage to mm. achieve abroad with conditions. No, me too. It's incredible. Just, <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. So I think that's a huge part of... Um, and I suppose in some ways that takes us back to the passion for what they did this for in the first place, really. Yeah. So, you know, they have that sort of passion for the animals and... I think that they make a huge contribution there that's probably not adequately recognised as well. So a number of different... And obviously a lot of people do these things, you know, not necessarily as their whole career, but they might do some of that work for a month, a year or whatever. And and vets do that, you know, some vets do that too. Um, So a lot of different potential things that one might might take on. I wanted to um, sort of end the podcast really, and you have mentioned a lot of this already in, in other contexts, but just to kind of run through... A summary, really, of a list of, of kind of more formal related questions that we should probably just knock out the park, as it were. So, the first one is: um, Is veterinary nursing now kind of formally recognised as a profession? So, does it have professional status, whatever that means? <laughs> um, at the moment, it doesn't have professional status. If you look at the general, yeah, if I'd, I'd looked at this you know, not long ago to think, well, actually, what are the requirements of a profession? So veterinary nursing currently doesn't fit into, you know, it doesn't meet all the criteria of a, of a registered profession. Um, we are working our way towards it, and certainly the regulation, um, you know, maintenance of a register, which is currently non-statutory, so we're signing up voluntarily at the moment, so it's a non-statutory process. Um, having things like the code of conduct, the potential to face disciplinary action, creating an evidence base is another one of those kind of key parts of having a profession. So making sure you've got your own body of knowledge, which currently veterinary nursing doesn't really have. It's very limited in its own sort of body of knowledge. So a lot of our it's getting much, much better as nurses come out and start publishing and start, um, you know, author base or, you know, they're doing far more. Um, but we don't really have a big base of evidence to sort of base our decisions on. It comes back to beliefs or traditions or what the vets told us to do. Um, so we're in case of building that up at the moment. Um, and is there a, I think you've said already, but so is the RCVS is basically the, like the governing body? For yeah, so the RCVS are now, they were at one stage did both. So they were pre-regulation sort of and those sort of changes they were both the regulate they were the sort of training body but now as a regulatory body also they sort of have stepped away from training so they'll approve the training centers but rather than sort of they award your qualification and then they potentially can take it away to say that you're not good enough it's it's sort of it doesn't really it contradicts itself as a role really so the rcvs are handing over much of their training sort of their responsibility for the training of nurses to sort of independent institutions that they will approve, but it's, it's sort of very different. So, okay, they and so they're, they're, the, they're the, the governing body, as yeah, it were. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then are there other kind of, again, I know we're, we're talking about the UK here, but are there other sort of, or not other, but are there leading kind of societies or associations yeah. that nurses may or may not choose to... So the British Veterinary Nursing Association is probably our, is our only sort of national representative body for veterinary nurses. Um, and they do, they do a fair amount for their members. So if you want to join as a BVNA member, um, they'll certainly do quite a lot of CPD. They publish a monthly journal, again, contributing sort of more to, you know, uh, literature really for veterinary nurses. They'll support you with, in practice, the legal advice and any support that you might require. 
um, and they do a huge amount in sort of um, representing veterinary nursing interests and advising veterinary nurses. Do you, do you have a sense of, um, I guess, what proportion of UK nurses are members of the BVNA or not? I don't know actually, off the top of my head. I don't yeah, actually know. See, because um, I know, like with the BVA, for example, mm. sometimes. Um, I'm never entirely clear, and, I, and it's probably just because we haven't looked up the data. I'm sure the data is yeah, available no. in terms of the percentage of people that are that are members. Um, and then again, you've said about the sort of the uh, CPD and whether there are kind of formal um, CPD requirements for veterinary nurses to. I should I should be putting I should be saying registered, registered yeah. nurses <laughs> to undertake. <clears throat> yeah, so our CPD requirements as registered nurses is 45 hours in only sort of three year period. So it's a rolling three year period, and you're expected to do 45 hours of CPD in that time. And again, I guess in in that context, the same sort of in terms of what counts as CPD, I guess it's a similar stuff as we would have in the veterinary yeah. surgeons as a, a diverse thing. Um, one of the things I guess I'm interested in from my sort of perspective as, a, as an ECC person is, um, you know, I do a fair amount of CPD, not, you know, and I have done non-RVC related mm-hmm. in the years gone by. And one of the things that um, I sometimes get asked to do is CPD for nurses. And one of the things I've also been told by a couple of people that run sort of smaller CPD companies, if you like, is that a number of vets are not entirely or not often very keen on doing nurses CPD. And part of the reason is they're not entirely sure kind of what level to pitch it at, what yep. to say, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then there are definitely some nurses who are also doing CPD for nurses. Mm-hmm. And I guess I always wonder when I see a title of a CPD session that's being held by a nurse, and it's the same title as a session that I would hold, yep. I often wonder what's different to what they're saying to what I'm saying. And, you know, you sometimes get sort of, can you do a CPD session on nursing of the ex-patient? And I find myself thinking... How is that different for just a CPD on the ex-patient? So yeah. I, I'm not asking the question very clearly, but I suppose what I'm asking is, how does CPD for nurses differ to CPD for vets? Is it just about the level of detail, or is it actually is there more stuff there that that vets just wouldn't get or wouldn't be particularly interested in? Or I don't know. I mean, you might you might not yeah. be able to help me out. No, here, I think <laughs> it's tricky. Yeah, I think certainly. I think. Um, it is really difficult, and I you know, looking for CPD is quite hard. If you think, well, where, you know, how how where do you pitch it? Because again, there's a big range in sort of nurses and nurses' uh, competencies or where they're working, nurses' experience. It's very similar to vets, I guess. You've got you know your first opinion vet, um, and then you've got people that are very specialist, sort of in a different field. So pitching some sort of CPD, I think I think there would probably certainly if you're looking at nursing of the certain patient, there would certainly be things that nurses would think of or. Um, cover that veterinary surgeons maybe wouldn't and it would be those um basic nursing tasks that maybe are sort of go unrecognized not unrecognized but they're sort of things that you do probably more naturally or without really even thinking about that you won't find in a book you know you won't sort of find written maybe some more anecdotal evidence i guess of actually what what really helps me is when the patients are like this or those top tips kind of things that you find that you pick up when you've moved around and you've worked with a lot of nurses and or in general conversations so you may find mm. little bits like that and it may again depending on your audience you know depending on how you've pitched it i've certainly been cpd for pitched by you know done by vets and done by nurses either from a nursing scale or gone to some of the sort of vet lectures for vets when I've been interested in a particular condition. Um, you know, and I've, you know, found equally both of them very interesting and it's just picking out the bits that, yeah, filling the gaps, I guess, in my knowledge, really. Yeah, because, um, so two things, really. One is uh, last year I did a day on um, 
cats that have been hit by cars, mm-hmm. and it was for nurses. And for that CPD company, it was very well attended. They had their sort of best turnout ever. It's a small yeah. local company. It's not like it's you know a national CPD provider. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, they had a really good turnout. And you know, again, I was a bit like I'd, I'd come prepared to talk about the things mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about and all that kind of stuff. And I wasn't really. Again, I was about you know. As you say, the audience was going to be quite diverse, people working in different mm-hmm. circumstances and so on. Um, the feedback I received after that was that, every, well, everyone that, f- that filled out the feedback was that they thought it was a very good day and yeah. very useful and stuff. But I was conscious that I was not overemphasizing some of the things that possibly in a more kind of nursing off the trauma mm-hmm. patient you might get. But I also see titles, you know, that, that um, I guess more, more sort of specialist nurses are delivering lectures on shock and sepsis yeah and i'm kind of a bit like what are they saying in those lectures and i should probably go and listen yeah i think that's the thing because you've got this sort of you know you've got nurses now that are doing more specialist qualifications you said about the diploma yeah. and people are becoming you know ecc qualified mm-hmm. or surgery qualified or whatever and um i guess that's something that's that's interesting is one of the things in the veterinary world is that, you know, I can go off and do CPD and pretty much mm-hmm. say what I want and no one ever actually checks to yeah. see what I said. <laughs> and I suppose, yeah. you know, there's it, probably the same thing that needs to be thought about in veterinary prof- in, in nursing yeah. as well, is that if more nurses are going to be delivering CPD, I guess just like with the vets, there is no oversight, I suppose, about what yeah. it is they're saying, right? So, um, I don't know, that's just a general comment really. About, yeah, um, I think I think from as far as nurses giving them a CPD on, you know, maybe more specialist topics, I think probably the spin that they that they provide is, you know, I guess the facts are there if you're talking very fact-based of nursing of this patient, say, orthopedics, they might give you a nice overview of orthopedic or fracture management, something like this. But what they would, you know, probably just get far more into the, what does that mean to me? As a nurse in practice, what mm. can I do? So mm. that's what I want from, you know, if I'm going to a CPD thing, mm. you know, I'll either go for it for just because it's a condition that I'm interested in or, you know, something that I want to learn about. Because I'm nursing those patients postoperatively, so the more information that I've got about what's happened to them before they reach me or whilst they're in under my care, really, mm. what can I do for them? And the more information I've got about the condition, those kind of things will certainly influence my decisions on how I can best provide, you know, care for them to make sure they're most comfortable and most happy. Actually, very timely because today I was listening to another podcast, (laughs) (laughs) a human medicine one, actually. But um, one of the comments that was made on there was um, this lady who's a human adult intensivist. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't deal with kids. And she attended a pediatric lecture. And she said that one of the things she took away from that Mm -hmm. was that she felt that her and her colleagues were very pathology-centered. So they were very much more interested in about the disease the patient had mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Whereas she felt that the pediatric people were more patient-centered. So they're actually, yeah. the pathology was just one thing that they obviously needed to think about, but actually they also had a wider focus on the patient. And I guess mm-hmm. listening to you, you're sort of saying, well, the nurses need to know enough about the pathology to understand why the patient is like they are. Yeah, so why but is that, that relevant? Pro- really? probably have more of a patient-centered Yeah, I think certainly. And I think if you looked at, if I went to a lecture about... Um, you know, neurological conditions or, you know, those kind of approaches to a patient that's got neurological problems. I would certainly be thinking, you know, I'd expect them to say, well, actually, you know, your patients can't walk. Chances are they can't reach their water bowl. So unless you put on their sheet, offer water, make sure these patients can... We, we sort of come back to a little bit like... Um, some of the criticisms, I guess, of the NHS is that patients are in hospital and they can't reach the cup of water that's at the end of their bed and they're really thirsty and they can't get anybody's attention to say, I'm really thirsty, I can't reach it. And so... Um, transferring that to a veterinary world, we're sort of saying to nurses, actually, you know, it's one of those things, both in training and post-qualification, to say, well, actually, 
if these patients can't get up, you know, if we're turning them because they can't move, we should also be thinking, well, can they get to their water bowl? I've given them water, but can they actually get to it if it's two foot away from them and they can't walk? You know, should we be <clears throat> passing them, excuse me, their water bowls and, you know, moistening their lips and moistening their tongues, making them feel more comfortable if they're not willing or, you know, prepared to drink themselves kind of thing. No, absolutely. And um, the kind of one of the last things I wanted to ask you actually is, and again, you sort of touched on it already when we were talking about <coughs> qualified and registered, etc. but was... Um, in terms of sort of procedures and decisions about treatments and so on, mm-hmm. um, what, what is a, a qualified registered veterinary nurse allowed to do? Um, are they ultimately responsible for the things that they do, or are, is it always going to be the sort of nominally supervising vet that that is ultimately responsible for <coughs> those things? Um, I know that in the context of our hospital here, you know, we we have had a real push in the last year or so about our pain assessment and our pain management and so on. And, you know, the decisions that nurses are or are not allowed to make has yep. come up as a point of conversation mm-hmm. quite a lot in that context. So, yeah, if you could give us a little bit of background about what nurses can officially do, that, that would be great. Yeah. So I guess nurses are able to, you know, there's a lot of things that I guess that are considered veterinary surgery under the Veterinary Surgeons Act, but those that are covered um, under Schedule 3 are the ones that nurses can do if we're looking at specifically technical skills. <clears throat> so even things like taking blood samples, placing IV catheters, those kind of things could be considered as acts of veterinary surgery. So those are the ones you know nurses can do. So we can certainly be you know placing urinary catheters, taking bloods, putting IVs in, doing all those kind of fairly sort of um, technical skills, really. The skills that we can't do as veterinary nurses are any of those that involve entry into a body cavity. <clears throat> That's where I guess the, the, the definite line is drawn. Um, or any sort of dental extractions, those kind of... There's some definites that nurses can't do, but you're right, it's a very fuzzy area, I mm. guess, in, even in law. And again, it's one of those things that... As the profession moves forward, I, I assume at some stage there'll be sort of legislative changes um, as to what nurses can and can't do. But you know, so there are acts of surgery, certainly suturing wounds, those kind of skills are ones that nurses could do. And I'm not saying it's you know as a day one qualified nurse that you're able or capable of doing that, but certainly with um, <clears throat> your CPD, if that's something that you really wanted to get into and doing those kind of more surgical skills, it's certainly something that you could adapt and do, and a lot of practices would support that. But I think... So nurses are allowed to see through <clears> a skin wound? Yes. Really? See, no, yes, I they can do that. that. So it'd be under your sort of supervision. Of course, yeah. But certainly, you know, because, you, you know, that's where, you know, it's under supervision, but it's certainly something nurses can I do. I a lot of people don't know that. No, it really isn't. Just, uh, and I've seen, you know, nurses <laughs> that I sort of worked with in practice previously at doing things like tail amputations or lump removals, those kind of things are things that nurses can do mm. under the sort of schedule. But, <clears throat> again, it's something that nurses don't always do in practice, um... And I think a lot of people get hung up on what, what can I do, what can I do, as if, you know, sure. there's sort of a competitive, not competitive, but what can I do, we know I want to do more and more and more. Um, and um, in the context of the technical skills that they are allowed to do, mm-hmm. um, you know, let's say there's a nurse is, uh, I don't know, taking a, a jugular blood sample and, yeah. God forbid, something rare but diabolical occurs... Mm-hmm. Who is culpable for that or responsible for that or whatever word we should be yeah. using politically correct? <laughs> so <laughs> I guess if, if something like that did happen, um, as registered nurses, you know, I'm saying that I, I'm acting within my own capabilities and my competencies. So for me, if I'm comfortable with taking blood samples, which I am, and something went terribly wrong, and I was like, oh, something's gone awfully wrong, then I... <clears throat> it would be one of those things that I guess, following a very similar sort of disciplinary if it came to that, so... If, so, if something went wrong and it was a case of they're going to, it's going to be reported to the RCVS, 
as our governing body. It would certainly go to their investigating committee first um, before it then went on to potential disciplinary action, and that would be now against me as a registered veterinary nurse. And, um, and then, so, but are you allowed to decide to do those things, or do you, does a vet need to ask you to do them, or do you need to ask the vet if you can do them, or can you just decide to go and place a urinary catheter? No, they would be things that I, you know, under your sort of direction, really, I guess. Okay. Um, so if you'd, <coughs> sorry, so if you'd said, you know, Hayley, this, this dog needs a, can you take an IV sample out of the, you know, jugular sample from this dog? If it's within my remit, within my capabilities, and I'm confident in doing that, I certainly can do that. But again, if I was asked to do something that I didn't know how to do or I wasn't competent at or I didn't feel or wasn't actually part of any nursing role, again, as a registered nurse, I should be able to say, no, actually, I can't do it. You know, it's, it's kind of knowing your competencies and knowing what you can't do. So keeping within your realm of... Um, and look, before you, you actually die... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. My throat's been um, so good. I only just have one last question for you. I'm going to leave you in peace. Um, and that was basically, if, um, if someone wants to go to find out more information about veterinary nursing in general, <clears throat> about planning their career, about what the future options are or anything like that, is there... Um, are there kind of information resources that, that you could recommend? Or? Yeah, certainly the um, RCVS website has got um, a section on veterinary nursing education. There's a link to, say you want to be a veterinary nurse, and that will run you through what to do from there. And certainly the um, RVC website as well, that will detail our courses and our entry requirements. Um, and a little bit more detail about veterinary nursing here that we would do. All right, so those are two good places to, to start with. All right, look, I'm going <laughs> to leave you alone now. Thank you. Um, but, but thank you so much for taking the time to come and, and no, join thank me. Thank you very much. We've um, covered quite a lot of stuff here and gone off on tangents, as, yeah. as we always do. Um, but I'm sure the listeners, or I hope they would have found it um, useful and informative. And, you know, we've obviously touched on um, some things that are a little bit controversial, and I play devil's advocate as best <laughs> as I can, some things I don't actually believe. But... Um, before we do end, and you're bearing your voice in mind, but is there anything else you wanted to say, or do you think that we're we're done? Have we covered everything that we needed to? I think we. I think yeah. I think at the moment, veterinary nursing is in a it's at a turning point. I guess it's in a crux of it. It's, it's moving towards being a professional or a recognised profession and being sort of pushing itself forward really and getting the recognition that I think the profession deserves. Sorry, that's, that's probably all I can say. Um, but yeah, veterinary nursing. <laughs> it does. It's, it's a fantastic career. Um, there's certainly a lot of potential to go, and I think it's 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 a very exciting times, I guess, for veterinary nursing. Yeah, and you were saying, you know, before we started, um, you don't have to speak anymore, by the way. But you were saying before we started about, you know, what a, what a sort of a period of transition, I guess, the, the veterinary nursing is in at the moment, and all the things that are happening that yep. that I was guilty of not necessarily appreciating in their full yeah. extent. So. <laughs> So that's great. And um, to the listeners, as always, then, you know, do feel free to, to get in touch and provide your feedback uh, in the usual ways. And also let me know if you have any um, topics that you would really like to do a podcast on. And obviously, if you would like to comment in any way on any of the things that Haley said, or maybe any of the things that I've said, um, then you can email me directly at sjasani at rvc.ac.uk. You can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page and there's an album there that contains links to the podcast. Um, or you can tweet at Royal Veterinary College, which is at Royal Vet College, um, using the hashtag SAClinPod. And until next time then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. <laughs>